Gospel according to John. Um, and while we've had, as I said a minute ago, we've had a few weeks off from that study, we're going to take a few, a few more weeks before we just jump right back in. Um, see, in the summertime, often, uh, I, like to, I like to take a step back and, and take a look at where we are as a church and assess what our needs are specifically. And so we could rightly argue that our greatest need is to know Christ and Him crucified, right? And John is certainly teaching us that as we walk through his gospel. That is our need at all times. But there are times when we have specific or, or specialized needs, and I, and I think this is one of those times. And so as Chris and I headed off for vacation a few weeks ago, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, our friend, our fellow church member, Butch, entered into glory. And frankly, um, it's a part of life, right? It's a difficult part, but it is a part of life. Everyone dies, and we still rightly mourn. But we as a church have also been visited on more than one occasion by cancer. Our friends and fellow church members, regular attenders of this church, have been struggling with some long-term health problems. Some have been suffering, and you don't know about it. Others we've been praying for publicly and regularly. And then beyond sickness and death, others in our assembly have been dealing with family concerns. Wayward children, grandchildren, marriage problems, even divorce, you you name it. We've been struggling with it. And and just as an aside, um, I want to just to be clear, lest you think that we don't practice church discipline. This is where I would go in my thinking. We do. Um, In the cases of divorce, every one of them, the offending spouse has not or uh, is not or has never really been a part of this church. And at least in a couple of cases, the offended have come to us in the midst of their turmoil. And so we just walk through this valley with them. And God has gifted the church with certain individuals who are to lead the church in walking through that valley with those who are suffering. It's no coincidence that Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. And then Psalm 23 proclaims, the Lord is my shepherd. And that even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for our Lord Jesus is with us. He has promised to be with us to the end of the age. It's also no coincidence that Jesus has given to the church shepherds or under-shepherds to care for the souls of those under their charge. In writing to these elect exiles who were suffering persecution, Peter, he concludes his first letter. I read this a minute ago, but I want to emphasize this. He he concludes his first letter by instructing the elders of the churches. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We could define the work of the shepherd, the elder, as the care of souls. I like that phrase. It's an old, probably Puritan phrase. 
Let me show you the primary way that this is accomplished. Second uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 says this. Paul, again, writing this time to Pastor Timothy at the very end of his life, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and, and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Because, as Paul had written just in the previous verses, indeed, all who desire to lead, uh, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The primary medicine for the care of souls is God's Word. And so this brings us to the valley of the shadow of death. Turn to Psalm 6. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. If you have, um, well, let me read this, Psalm 6, starting right there with the introduction to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's just stop here and pray one more time. Lord, we are a needy people, and so I pray that you would give us what we need today. Feed us, Lord, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've spent any time in the book of Psalms, which is the, really the poetry and the song of the people of God, if you've spent any time there, you know that there are many psalms that sound kind of similar to this one. Now, some of the psalms, if we could put it this way, some of the psalms are jazz. 
Some of the psalms are hymns. Some of the psalms are rock and roll. Many of the psalms are the blues. And everybody understands the blues. For 30 years, between 1968 and 1998, Northern Ireland was mired in what came to be called the Troubles. You may remember the conflict there between uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants during that time. It was really it resulted in violence and terrorism. There was bombings and death and destruction. Everyone in Northern Ireland and in all of really Great Britain, the whole region, knows what the Troubles were because they impacted everyone one way or another. All Christians experience the troubles in one way or another. We know this from our own experiences, and ultimately we can, we can trace our troubles and really the, the wickedness behind them. We can trace our troubles all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the doubt and distrust and disbelief that, that fractured the relationship that God had with his first human creation, his first human creatures. When Adam first sinned, when Eve first doubted God, did God really say? When Adam first sinned and Eve first doubted God, when sin entered into the world and death with it, it it brought all kinds of disorder, all kinds of dysfunction, all kinds of even despair. Previous to sin being in the world, humanity was in perfect union with God. But when we turned from that, We saw the the introduction of of turmoil, tribulations of many kinds, tragedies into the the normal course of events in the human existence. All of a sudden, horrendous storms, sicknesses, violence became a part of the human experience. And so now suffering is normal. Sickness, par for the course. Despair is increasingly commonplace. Over the course of history, as Christians, we've often responded to these troubles in in a couple of ways. Either we blame Satan directly, or, or we begin wondering if God has forgotten us, or even if God has become our primary adversary. Trials and tribulations can cause us to return, really, to the doubt of the garden. It can cause us easily to sin. And so what shall we do? How shall we mortify our sin of doubt that leads only to despair? Well, to begin with, we need to develop what theologians will call a theology of the cross. That means we we need to build our understanding of God, our theology, in light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ on the cross. This is, in fact, the argument that Paul gives in in 1 Corinthians when he writes in chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, if the basis for our understanding of God is Christ and Him crucified, then then any notion of, of living your best life now or prosperity theology or even God wants me to be happy, that goes out the window as the rubbish that it really is. Instead, in our times of trial and testing and even tribulation, we can turn to the God of the cross to find our ever-present help and our anchor for our hope. 
And, and it is with this backdrop, the cross, that we may turn to our God in our day of trouble. And as we do, as we lament, we must find our words of lament with the psalmists. Because it is in the psalms that we find the right, the good, the proper words to express our emotions to God. We can cry out to God and long for His presence as our loving Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier. And we can be confident that when no one else is listening, God is. We can be confident that when no one else is listening, God is. This is what a a lament is. It's praising God in the dark. I love that description. Praising God in the dark. The Psalms of lament teach us how to complain to God. Think of that for a moment. The Psalms of lament teach us how to complain to God in a way that honors Him. It teaches us how to complain to God in a way that honors Him. Now, all of the Psalms are prayers and hymns that God chose to teach us how to express ourselves to Him in worship. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran killed by the Nazis, he calls them, the Psalms, the Word of God and the prayers of men. That's a simple description. The Psalms are the Word of God and the prayers of men. And of these prayers, about a third of them, 60-something, are laments. Some are community laments. Psalm chapter 44, 44, 22 says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Some are individual laments. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? A few of them are what we call imprecatory laments. Psalm 35, verse 1, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. And some are what we sometimes call penitential laments. They are laments that ask for forgiveness for sin. And and this is where we are this morning. And so as they say in golf, as I've heard, we've waggled on the tee long enough. Let's get into it. So Psalm chapter 6 is the troubles. This psalm can be divided into four parts. I'm going to give you each of them now, and then we'll go through each one as we work our way through this. The first is verses 1 through 3, the troubles of discipline. The troubles of discipline. Verses 4 and 5 are the troubles of death. So the troubles of discipline, the troubles of death. Verses 6 and 7, we can see the troubles of despair, the troubles of despair. So discipline, death, despair. And then verses 8, 9, and 10 are the troubles, deliverance. I just put it that way so that they'd be all Ds. The deliverance from troubles is really what it means. Okay, verses 8, 9, and 10. So as we begin, we can tell from that little introduction that David wrote it. But that's pretty much all we know. We do know it's a song. You can see there it's written for guitar, (laughs) or harp, or whatever, stringed instruments. Um, But that's pretty much all we know. We don't know the circumstances of when he wrote this. We don't know the sin for which he was being disciplined. All we know is that David poured out his heart before the Lord here. So, the troubles of discipline. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. O Lord, 
Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Oftentimes, when we go through trials and tribulations, we ask the question, why? What have I done? Is God punishing me? And what is your knee-jerk reaction when somebody asks you that question? No, 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 it's not your fault. It's not your fault. But what if it is? Now, I want to be careful here. Oftentimes it's not. But what if it is? Have you ever considered that? What if your trial or tribulation is the result of your sin? In these verses, David is clearly acknowledging that his troubles were the result of his being disciplined by the Lord. Verses 2 and 3, he's had enough. Verses 4 and 5, he feels like he's going to die. I need to point out that this, is, this idea of being disciplined by the Lord is clear New Testament teaching as well. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 just beginning in verse 5. The preacher of Hebrews is quoting here, and he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. He's quoting a proverb, or a couple of them. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it has seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, when we look at those verses, we could easily interpret that to say that if if God never disciplines us, if God never disciplines you, it is either because A, you never sin, or B, because he doesn't love you, or C, because we're not numbered among his children. And so just the very fact that we face discipline ought to be of great relief to us because it means that while we still sin, we all know that we still sin, while we still sin, He still loves us because we are His children. And so as Luther wrote in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our whole lives are to be of repentance. And in this, the first of the Psalms of Lament here, Psalm 6, we find a Psalm of, again, penitential lament. A Psalm of repentance. If we are facing lives of constant repentance, if we're living lives where we are constantly repenting of our sin 
And this should be our first response when we face trials and tribulations. An examined life. Think of James chapter 5. Just as an example, verses 13 through 16 in James 5, James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And that's what David is doing here. Look again at verse, just the very first verse. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Whatever the sin was that David had committed... We need to be careful to read this with the understanding that he's really not asking for God's rebuke to be totally withheld from him. Rather, we would read it, rebuke me not in your anger, or discipline me not in your wrath. And that word for wrath there, the King James, and maybe some other versions, but the King James uses the phrase hot displeasure, burning anger. Down in verse 5, David will make reference to his own death. See, here's the thing. David is pleading with God to not kill him for his sin. When God disciplines us, we need to remember that the wages of sin is death. We should remember that. David is conscious of this. But he also understands God's character. This idea echoes what what Jeremiah prays. In in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24, he writes, Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Charles Spurgeon, on this point, is very helpful. He says, "So, So may we pray that the chastisements of our gracious God, if they may not be entirely removed may at least be sweetened by the consciousness that they are not in anger, but in his dear covenantal love. God disciplines, Hebrews tells us, God disciplines those whom he loves. And it is this this covenantal love that, that David uses as the basis for this entire prayer. In fact, this is the this really is the foundation for this whole psalm. It kind of subtly undergirds all of Psalm 6. Eight times here, eight times throughout this psalm, David calls on God by name. Four times just in these opening verses. O Lord, rebuke me not. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord. But you, O Lord, how long? David is appealing there to Yahweh directly and by name, to the great I Am. David is directly addressing the God who revealed his own name to Moses at the burning bush and and redeemed his people from their slavery in Egypt. The Lord who said of himself, as Steve preached a few weeks ago and, and Randy talked about in Sunday school, he said this, the Lord said this of himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. These are God's words. The Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And David, just in using this name in prayer, as he pleads with God's, for God's mercy and for his grace, he's clinging to God's character and God's promises. He's holding fast to God's steadfast covenantal love. Yet David's also acknowledging throughout this that he's hurting. He's even hurting physically. His bones are troubled. They're trembling. He's quaking. He aches all over. He's hurting spiritually. He says that his soul is greatly troubled. It is vexed. He is stressed out to the max. He is he's terrified is what that means. David is, is languishing under the, the troubling, the, the terrifying rebuke of the Lord. And then he asks this all-important question that's not answered in this psalm. How long? How long? Someone said that grief is apt to utter broken sentences. You've seen that. You've probably asked questions and not been able to get them all out before the tears start to come. That's what this is. He doesn't even finish his thought. He's too choked up with grief to, to finish this. How long? How long will you continue to hide your face? How long will you afflict my spirit? How long will you chastise my body? How long will you deny me your love? How long will you shut your ears to my complaints? How long, O Lord? Not why. How long? What a mercy it is to be allowed to pour out our tears and our complaints to God. What a mercy that is, that God allows this to happen. And I want to tell you that, that we, as Christians, we have an answer to this question. We have an answer to the question, how long? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. I want you to read this one with your own eyes too. Turn over there. 2 Peter chapter 3. read from 1 Peter earlier, and he talks about suffering, really both of his letters, elect exiles. They're, they've been suffering persecution, and at the end of this letter, his second letter, he says, but, verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to, 
to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, now this is the long view, right? We understand that. This is the long view. This is the view that gives us hope, though. And in our pleading to the Lord, while clinging to his covenantal love, we must, like David, acknowledge our own sinfulness. This is the right way to plead with God. Again, one of the old, one of the old preachers said this. I don't remember which one. He said, urge not your own goodness or greatness. In other words, don't pray, why me? What did I do to deserve this? But instead, plead your sin and littleness. And with this question, how long? David turns to God to plead for his life. He really is pleading for God to spare him. The troubles of death. Look at verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol who will give you praise. Now David is not being dramatic. He's not a drama queen. He's not saying, I could just die. That's not what he's doing. This is a real threat that he faces. He knows, as I said, because Paul said it, He knows the wages of sin is death. Or really, he would use an Old Testament phrase, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He understands that. This is not just an abstract theological concept for him. David had witnessed personally in his own life, he had witnessed King Saul's sin and then his slow descent into paranoia and madness that that ended with King Saul committing suicide. David knew that God had rejected Saul, but he also knew, he also knew the, the other men of Israel's history who had sinned and, and even been killed by God. Achan, Joshua chapter 7, for example, was put to death for his sin swiftly and almost immediately. But lest you think that God doesn't operate like that anymore, Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, we read these sobering words. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, Paul says to the Corinthians. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is vital for Christians to remember. God disciplines those whom he loves. This is vital for us to remember. We could say it backwards. Those whom he loves, God disciplines. Not to condemn us, but to bring us to repentance. 
And so when David prays here in verse 4, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, he's clinging to that steadfast love because, because it's all he's got. But even more than that, he's asking for deliverance from death for the glory of God's steadfast love. That his enemies, the the enemies of verses 8, 9, and 10, may hear of Yahweh, the Lord's steadfast covenantal love. And look again at verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you, in Sheol who will give you praise. Now, what David is not saying here, he is not saying that in heaven no one praises God. We know that that's not true. What he is saying is this. What good am I at praising you if I'm dead? He's pleading the same argument that Paul makes. Paul's is a little more optimistic when Paul says to live is Christ. That's what David is saying, essentially. He's just a little bit more down here. To live is Christ. What good am I at praising you if I'm dead? The voice of the dead is no longer heard praising God on the earth. And David is thinking evangelistically here. He's thinking of the glory of God's name among men. But there's another way to read this as well. If God, in his hot displeasure, in his wrath, punished David to death, then by the very nature of this punishment, David would, he would fall into hell. He would be utterly consumed by God's burning fury and he would lose all hope. Yahweh, he's saying, if you send me to hell, how can I praise you? This thought terrified David. His bones hurt because of this. To spend an eternity apart from his covenant-keeping, faithful, loving God left him crying out, how long? Please, O Lord, not forever. It's no wonder that David felt the troubles of despair. Troubles of despair. Look at verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Look at the descriptors in those verses. He's weary. He's flooded with tears. He's wasted away. He's filled with grief because of all of his foes. According to verse 6, this is an evening prayer. He's He's had a long, hard day, and he's facing another sleepless night of groanings and tears. He's already moaned and groaned until his throat was hoarse. He's cried out for mercy until prayer became a a labor that he could hardly continue in. He's cried until his eyes were dry. Again, Spurgeon, a man who incidentally knew these feelings well, he said, people may groan, but they may not grumble. Yea, they must groan, being burdened, or they will never shout in the day of deliverance. We groan that we may shout in the day of deliverance. Well, at this point here in verses 6 and 7, David is in the throes of despair. And when we find ourselves in the throes of despair, our world gives us two options. They really send two messages. The first is, 
that suicide is an option. Probably a good one. Now, they don't tell us that outright, that suicide is a good option, right? The world doesn't say that outright, unless it's physician-assisted. But they're surely sending that message, right? The second message is, if you choose not to take your own life, we can give you medication. And this, they promise, will dull the sense of despair. With that in mind, listen to how another old commentator describes David's life at this point. He says, by his own inward griefs, the afflictions of his body, the cruel persecutions of his enemies, he felt the encroachment of premature old age and beheld in the languid eye and in the sunken cheek and in the pallid countenance the appearances of a dissolution rapidly approaching. He was knocking on heaven's door. David was knocking on heaven's door. And our world provides no answers no hope, no solutions. And you know what? It's only getting worse. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, I'm going to just throw a couple of quick statistics at you. National Center for Health Statistics, the annual U.S. suicide rate increased 24% between 1999 and 2014. 24%. It's the highest rate recorded in many years. And, and due to the stigma around suicide, the CDC suspects that it's generally underreported. Most people don't admit that their loved one committed suicide. But even worse, suicide is the leading cause of death, the leading cause of death for young people aged 15 to 24. It's the third leading cause of death for those, listen, between 10 and 14. The third leading cause of death. Between 10 and 14 years old. The troubles of despair in our world are being magnified before our very eyes. And then what happens, I don't want to go too far down this road, but what happens when a celebrity commits suicide? Oh, they were just sick. It wasn't their fault. But I want to show you the hope here. Because despair is a very real thing. But even in David's lament, even in David's deep despair, he clings to the hope of deliverance from the troubles. The deliverance from his troubles. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, can you see the sudden change in David's tone? He had just been weeping. His couch, his bed is soaked. His eye is wasted away. He's weak. And all of a sudden, he's confident in verse 8. Can you see the confidence there? Depart from me, you workers of evil. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David suddenly is confident. So this raises a couple of questions just as we read through this. What happened? How were his prayers answered? How does David know that the Lord heard him? Did he wake up the next morning 
having cried himself to sleep the previous night, and then pray verses 8, 9, and 10? You know what? We don't know. Here's what we do know. We don't know what changed in David's life between verses 7 and 8. But here's what we do know. This is who David prayed to. The Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's how God describes himself. And listen to this promise. Listen to this promise. It's very simple. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. It's repeated. It's in Joel. It's repeated in the New Testament a couple of times. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, even from despair. The Lord has heard his prayer. It was as good as answered. We don't know how long. We don't know the answer to his question specifically. But we know that it was not for an eternity. We know that he was not separated from God forever. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord has heard his prayer. And because he is faithful and just. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 3, God promised this. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. That promise of restoration for the people of Israel must have been ringing in David's ears when he's praying to God. But what about for us? What hope do we have to free us from the depths of despair? It's the same hope. It's the hope of deliverance. Deliverance from the troubles. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes, as in the case here of Psalm 6, our trials and tribulation are the result of sin. Not always. We're going to talk about some other ways in uh, the weeks to come, but sometimes they are. It is fitting that the very first of the Psalms of Lament In the order of the Psalms, there's 150 Psalms. In the order of the Psalms, the very first of the Psalms of Lament is a Psalm of repentance. Because that's where we should start. That's where we should start with repentance. Because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ is the hope that we have. He's the hope that we must proclaim to a world that is filled with troubles. Beloved, it is good and right to praise God in the dark. I started off our service this morning by reading this. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. Let's pray. Well, God, I thank you for David's troubles. I thank you that he put them to verse, that he put them to song, to poetry. I thank you that you have preserved them as your word, handed them down through generations, that we may sing, read, proclaim, memorize, to understand the hope that we may have. That our Lord, our Yahweh, our, the great I am, the God who is, might hear our prayers. That he has sent Christ, that you, Father, have sent your Son, to bear our iniquity, our sin, our trespasses and open up a way for us to boldly approach the throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Lord, I pray that you would transform our prayers, that your word and your spirit working in our hearts would transform our prayers as we cry out to you that we would cling to your steadfast covenantal love, your promises. Oh Lord, may you be glorified even as we even as we rely so much on you for all things. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.